Chapter 13 of K. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. K. by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter 13. A few days after Wilson's recognition of Kay, two most exciting things happened to Sidney. One was that Christine asked her to be maid of honor at her wedding. The other was more wonderful. She was accepted and given her cap. Because she could not get home that night, and because the little house had no telephone, she wrote the news to her mother and sent a note to Lemoyne. Dear Kay, I am accepted and it is on my head at this minute. I am as conscious of it as if it were a halo, and as if I had done something to deserve it, instead of just hoping that some day I shall. I am writing this on the bureau, so that when I lift my eyes I may see it. I am afraid just now I am thinking more of the cap than of what it means. It is becoming. Very soon I shall slip down and show it to the ward, I have promised. I shall go to the door when the night nurse is busy somewhere and turn all around and let them see it without saying a word. They love a little excitement like that. You have been very good to me, dear Kay. It is you who have made possible this happiness of mine tonight. I am promising myself to be very good and not so vain and to love my enemies, although I have none now. Miss Harrison has just congratulated me most kindly, and I am sure poor Joe has both forgiven and forgotten. Off to my first lecture. Sidney. Kay found the note on the hall table when he got home that night, and carried it upstairs to read. Whatever faint hope he might have had that her youth would prevent her acceptance, he knew now was over. With the letter in his hand, he sat by his table and looked ahead into the empty years. Not quite empty, of course. She would be coming home. But more and more, the life of the hospital would engross her. He surmised, too, very shrewdly, that had he ever had a hope that she might come to care for him, his very presence in the little house militated against him. There was none of the illusion of separation. He was always there, like Katie. When she opened the door, she called, Mother, from the hall. If Anna did not answer, she called him in much the same voice. He had built a wall of philosophy that had withstood even Wilson's recognition and protest. But enduring philosophy comes only with time, and he was young. Now and then all his defenses crumbled before a passion that, when he dared to face it, shook him by its very strength and that day all his stoicism went down before Sidney's letter. Its very frankness and affection hurt. Not that he did not want her affection, but he craved so much more. He threw himself face down on the bed, with the paper crushed in his hand. Sidney's letter was not the only one he received that day. When, in response to Katie's summons, he rose heavily and prepared for dinner, he found an unopened envelope on the table. It was from Max Wilson. Dear Lemoyne, I have been going around in a sort of haze all day. 
the fact that i only heard your voice and scarcely saw you last night has made the whole thing even more unreal i have a feeling of delicacy about trying to see you again so soon i'm bound to respect your seclusion but there are some things that have got to be discussed you said last night that things were different with you i know about that you've had one or two unlucky accidents do you know any man in our profession who has not and for fear you think i do not know what i am talking about the thing was threshed out at the state society when the question of the tablet came up old barnes got up and said gentlemen all of us live more or less in glass houses let him who is without guilt among us throw the first stone by george you should have heard them i didn't sleep last night i took my little car and drove around the country roads and the farther i went the more outrageous your position became i'm not going to write any rot about the world needing men like you although it's true enough but our profession does you working in a gas office while old o'hara bungles and hacks and i struggle along on what i learned from you it takes courage to step down from the pinnacle you stood on so it's not cowardice that has set you down here it's wrong conception and i've thought of two things the best and first is for you to go back no one has taken your place because no one could do the work but if that's out of the question and only you know that for only you know the facts the next best thing is this and in all humility i make the suggestion take the state exams under your present name and when you've got your certificate come in with me this isn't magnanimity i'll be getting a damn sight more than i give think it over old man m w it is a curious fact that a man who is absolutely untrustworthy about women is often the soul of honor to other men the younger wilson taking his pleasures lightly and not too discriminatingly was making an offer that meant his ultimate eclipse and doing it cheerfully with his eyes open Kay was moved it was like max to make such an offer like him to make it as if he were asking a favor and not conferring one but the offer left him untempted he had weighed himself in the balance and found himself wanting no tablet on the college wall could change that and when late that night wilson found him on the balcony and added appeal to argument the situation remained unchanged he realized its hopelessness when Kay lapsed into whimsical humor i'm not absolutely useless where i am you know max he said i've raised three tomato plants and a family of kittens this summer helped to plan a trousseau assisted in selecting wallpaper for the room just inside did you notice it and developed a boy pitcher with a ball that twists around the bat like a collie's fracture around a splint if you're going to be humorous my dear fellow said Kay quietly if i had no sense of humor i should go upstairs to-night turn on the gas and make a stertorous entrance into eternity by the way that's something i forgot eternity no among my other activities i wired the parlor for electric light the bride-to-be expects some electroliers as wedding gifts and wilson rose and flung his cigarette into the grass i wish to god i understood you he said irritably 
K. rose with him, and all the suppressed feeling of the interview was crowded into his last few words. "'I'm not as ungrateful as you think, Max,' he said. "'I... you've helped a lot. Don't worry about me. I'm as well off as I deserve to be, and better. Good night. Good night.' Wilson's unexpected magnanimity put K. in a curious position, left him, as it were, with a divided allegiance. Sidney's frank infatuation for the young surgeon was growing. He was quick to see it. And where before he might have felt justified in going to the length of warning her, now his hands were tied. Max was interested in her. K. could see that, too. More than once he had taken Sidney back to the hospital in his car. Lemoyne, handicapped at every turn, found himself facing two alternatives, one but little better than the other. The affair might run a legitimate course ending in marriage, a year of happiness for her, and then what marriage with Max, as he knew him, would inevitably mean, wanderings away, remorseful returns to her, infidelities, misery or it might be less serious but almost equally unhappy for her. Max might throw caution to the winds, pursue her for a time, Kay had seen him do this, and then, growing tired, change to some new attraction. In either case, he could only wait and watch, eating his heart out during the long evenings when Anna read her daily thoughts upstairs, and he sat alone with his pipe on the balcony. Sidney went on night duty shortly after her acceptance. All of her orderly young life had been divided into two parts, day when one played or worked, and night when one slept. Now she was compelled to a readjustment. One worked in the night and slept in the day. Things seemed unnatural, chaotic. At the end of her first night report, Sidney added what she could remember of a little verse of Stevenson's. She added it to the end of her general report, which was to the effect that everything had been quiet during the night, except the neighborhood. And does it not seem hard to you, when all the sky is clear and blue, and I should like so much to play, to have to go to bed by day? The day assistant happened on the report and was quite scandalized. If the night nurses are to spend their time making up poetry, she said, crossly, we'd better change this hospital into a young lady's seminary. If she wants to complain about the noise in the street, she should do so in proper form. I don't think she made it up, said the head, trying not to smile. I've heard something like it somewhere, and what with the heat and the noise of traffic, I don't see how any of them get any sleep. But because discipline must be observed, she wrote on the slip the assistant carried around, please submit night reports in prose. Sidney did not sleep much. She tumbled into her low bed at nine o'clock in the morning those days, with her splendid hair neatly braided down her back, and her prayers said, and immediately her active young mind filled with images, Christine's wedding, Dr. Max passing the door of her old ward and she not there, Joe, even Tilly, whose story was now the sensation of the street. A few months before, she would not have cared to think of Tilly. She would have retired her into the land of things one must forget. But the street's conventions were not holding Sidney's thoughts now. She puzzled over Tilly a great deal, and over Grace and her kind. 
On her first night on duty, a girl had been brought in from the avenue. She had taken a poison, nobody knew just what. When the interns had tried to find out, she had only said, "'What's the use?' and she had died." Sidney kept asking herself why, those mornings when she could not get to sleep. People were kind, men were kind, really, and yet for some reason or other those things had to be. Why? After a time Sidney would doze fitfully, but by three o'clock she was always up and dressing. After a time the strain told on her. Lack of sleep wrote hollows around her eyes and killed some of her bright color. Between three and four o'clock in the morning she was overwhelmed on duty by a perfect madness of sleep. There was a penalty for sleeping on duty. The old night watchman had a way of slipping up on one nodding. The night nurses wished they might fasten a bell on him. Luckily, at four came early morning temperatures that roused her, and after that came the clatter of early milk wagons and the rosy hues of dawn over the roofs. Twice in the night, once at supper and again toward dawn, she drank strong black coffee, but after a week or two her nerves were stretched taut as a string. Her station was in a small room close to her three wards, but she sat very little as a matter of fact, her responsibility was heavy on her. She made frequent rounds. The late summer nights were fitful, feverish. The darkened wards stretched away like caverns from the dim light near the door. And from out of these caverns came petulant voices, uneasy movements, the banging of a cup on a bedside, which was the signal of thirst. The older nurses saved themselves when they could. To them, perhaps just a little weary with time and much service, the banging cup meant not so much thirst as annoyance. They visited Sidney sometimes and cautioned her, "'Don't jump like that, child. They're not parched, you know.' "'But if you have a fever and are thirsty?' "'Thirsty nothing. They get lonely. All they want is to see somebody.' Then, Sidney would say, rising resolutely, they are going to see me. Gradually the older girls saw that she would not save herself. They liked her very much, and they too had started in with willing feet and tender hands, but the thousand and one demands of their service had drained them dry. They were efficient, cool-headed, quick-thinking machines, doing their best, of course, but differing from Sidney in that their service was of the mind while hers was of the heart. To them, pain was a thing to be recorded on a report. To Sidney, it was written on the tablets of her soul. Carlotta Harrison went on night duty at the same time, her last night service as it was Sidney's first. She accepted it stoically. She had charge of the three wards on the floor just below Sidney, and of the ward into which all emergency cases were taken. It was a difficult service, perhaps the most difficult in the house. Scarcely a night went by without its patrol or ambulance case. Ordinarily, the emergency ward had its own night nurse, but the house was full to overflowing. Belated vacations and illness had depleted the training school. Carlotta, given double duty, merely shrugged her shoulders. I've always had things pretty hard here, she commented briefly. When I go out, I'll either be competent enough to run a whole hospital single-handed, or I'll be carried out feet first. 
Sidney was glad to have her so near. She knew her better than she knew the other nurses. Small emergencies were constantly arising and finding her at a loss. Once, at least every night, Miss Harrison would hear a soft hiss from the back staircase that connected the two floors, and going out would see Sidney's flushed face and slightly crooked cap bending over the stair rail. I'm dreadfully sorry to bother you, she would say, but so-and-so won't have a fever bath, or I've a woman here who refuses her medicine. Then would follow rapid questions and equally rapid answers. Much as Carlotta disliked and feared the girl overhead, it never occurred to her to refuse her assistance. Perhaps the angels who keep the great record will put that to her credit. Sidney saw her first death shortly after she went on night duty. It was the most terrible experience of all her life, and yet, as death goes, it was quiet enough. So gradual was it that Sidney, with Kay's little watch in hand, was not sure exactly when it happened. The light was very dim behind the little screen. One moment the sheet was quivering slightly under the struggle for breath, the next it was still. That was all. But to the girl it was catastrophe. That life, so potential, so tremendous a thing, could end so ignominiously that the long battle should terminate always in this capitulation. It seemed to her that she could not stand it. Added to all her other new problems of living was this one of dying. She made mistakes, of course, which the kindly nurses forgot to report, basins left about, errors on her records, she rinsed her thermometer in hot water one night and startled an intern by sending him word that Mary McGuire's temperature was a hundred and ten degrees. She let a delirious patient escape from the ward another night and go airily down the fire escape before she discovered what had happened. Then she distinguished herself by flying down the iron staircase and bringing the runaway back single-handed. For Christine's wedding, the street threw off its drab attire and assumed a wedding garment. In the beginning it was incredulous about some of the details. An awning from the house door to the curbstone, and a policeman, reported Mrs. Rosenfeld, who was finding steady employment at the Lorenz house, and another awning at the church with a red carpet. Mr. Rosenfeld had arrived home and was making up arrears of rest and recreation. Huh, he said. Suppose it don't rain. What then? His Jewish father spoke in him. And another policeman at the church, said Mrs. Rosenfeld triumphantly. What do they ask him if they don't trust him? But the mention of the policeman had been unfortunate. It recalled to him many things that were better forgotten. He rose and scowled at his wife. "'You tell Johnny something for me,' he snarled. "'You tell him when he sees his father walking down the street "'and he's sitting up there alone on that automobile, "'I want him to stop and pick me up when I hail him, "'me walking while my son swells around in a car. "'And another thing,' he turned savagely at the door, "'you let me hear of him roadhousing and I'll kill him.' The wedding was to be at five o'clock. This, in itself, defied all traditions of the street, which were either married in the very early morning at the Catholic Church or at eight o'clock in the evening at the Presbyterian. 
There was something reckless about five o'clock. The street felt the dash of it. It had a queer feeling that perhaps such a marriage was not quite legal. The question of what to wear became for the men an earnest one. Dr. Ed resurrected an old black frock coat and had a V of black cambric set in the vest. Mr. Jenkins, the grocer, rented a cutaway and bought a new Panama to wear with it. The deaf and dumb book agent, who boarded at McKee's and who, by reason of his affliction, was calmly ignorant of the excitement around him, wore a borrowed dress suit and considered himself to the end of his days the only properly attired man in the church. The younger Wilson was to be one of the ushers. When the newspapers came out with the published list and this was discovered, as well as that Sidney was the maid of honor, there was a distinct quiver through the hospital training school. A probationer was authorized to find out particulars. It was the day of the wedding then, and Sidney, who had not been to bed at all, was sitting in a sunny window in the dormitory annex drying her hair. The probationer was distinctly uneasy. I, I just wonder, she said, if you would let some of the girls come in to see you when you're dressed. Why, of course I will. It's awfully thrilling, isn't it? And isn't Dr. Wilson going to be an usher? Sidney colored. I believe so. Are you going to walk down the aisle with him? I don't know. They had a rehearsal last night, but of course I was not there. I, I think I walk alone. The probationer had been instructed to find out other things, so she set to work with a fan at Sidney's hair. "'You've known Dr. Wilson a long time, haven't you?' "'Ages. He's awfully good-looking, isn't he?' Sidney considered. She was not ignorant of the methods of the school. If this girl was pumping her... "'I'll have to think that over,' she said, with a glint of mischief in her eyes. "'When you know a person terribly well, you hardly know whether he's good-looking or not.' I suppose, said the probationer, running the long strands of Sidney's hair through her fingers, that when you are at home you see him often. Sidney got off the window sill and, taking the probationer smilingly by the shoulders, faced her toward the door. You go back to the girls, she said, and tell them to come in and see me when I am dressed, and tell them this. I don't know whether I am to walk down the aisle with Dr. Wilson, but I hope I am. I see him very often. I like him very much. I hope he likes me, and I think he's handsome. She shoved the probationer out into the hall and locked the door behind her. That message, in its entirety, reached Carlotta Harrison. Her smoldering eyes flamed. The audacity of it startled her. Sidney must be very sure of herself. She, too, had not slept during the day. When the probationer who had brought her the report had gone out, she lay in her long white nightgown, hands clasped under her head, and staring at the vault-like ceiling of her little room. She saw there Sidney in her white dress going down the aisle of the church. She saw the group around the altar, and as surely as she lay there, she knew that Max Wilson's eyes would be not on the bride, but on the girl who stood beside her. The curious thing was that Carlotta felt that she could stop the wedding if she wanted to. She'd happened on a bit of information. Many a wedding had been stopped for less. It rather obsessed her to think of stopping the wedding so that Sidney and Max would not walk down the aisle together. 
There came at last, an hour before the wedding, a lull in the feverish activities of the previous month. Everything was ready. In the Lorenz kitchen, piles of plates, negro waiters, ice-cream freezers, and Mrs. Rosenfeld stood in orderly array, in the attic, in the center of a sheet, before a toilet table which had been carried upstairs for her benefit, sat on this, her day of days, the bride. All the second story had been prepared for guests and presents. Florists were still busy in the room below. Bridesmaids were clustered on the little staircase, bending over at each new ring of the bell, and calling reports to Christine through the closed door. "'Another wooden box, Christine. It looks like more plates. What will you ever do with them all?' "'Good heavens! Here's another of the neighbors who wants to see how you look. Do say you can't have any visitors now.' Christine sat alone in the center of her sheet. The bridesmaids had been sternly forbidden to come into her room. "'I haven't had a chance to think for a month,' she said, "'and I've got some things I've got to think out.' But when Sidney came, she sent for her. Sidney found her sitting on a stiff chair in her wedding gown, with her veil spread out on a small stand. "'Close the door,' said Christine. And, after Sidney had kissed her, "'I've a good mind not to do it.' "'You're tired and nervous, that's all.' "'I am, of course, but that isn't what's wrong with me. Throw that veil someplace and sit down.' Christine was undoubtedly rouged, a very delicate touch. Sidney thought brides should be rather pale, but under her eyes were lines that Sidney had never seen there before. "'I'm not going to be foolish, Sidney. I'll go through with it, of course. It would put Mama in her grave if I made a scene now.' She suddenly turned on Sidney. "'Palmer gave his bachelor dinner at the country club last night. They all drank more than they should.' Somebody called Father up today and said that Palmer had emptied a bottle of wine into the piano.' He hasn't been here today. He'll be along, and as for the other, perhaps it wasn't Palmer who did it. That's not it, Sidney. I'm frightened. Three months before, perhaps, Sidney could not have comforted her, but three months had made a change in Sidney. The complacent sophistries of her girlhood no longer answered for truth. She put her arms around Christine's shoulders. A man who drinks is a broken reed, said Christine. That's what I'm going to marry and lean on the rest of my life, a broken reed, and that isn't all. She got up quickly and trailing her long satin train across the floor, bolted the door. Then from inside her corsage she brought out and held to Sidney a letter. Special delivery, read it. It was very short. Sidney read it at a glance. Ask your future husband if he knows a girl at 213 blank Avenue. Three months before, the avenue would have meant nothing to Sidney. Now she knew. Christine, more sophisticated, had always known. You see, she said, that's what I'm up against. Quite suddenly, Sidney knew who the girl at 213 blank Avenue was. The paper she held in her hand was hospital paper with the heading torn off. The whole sordid story lay before her. Grace Irving, with her thin face and cropped hair, and the newspaper on the floor of the ward beside her. One of the bridesmaids thumped violently on the door outside. "'Another electric lamp!' she called excitedly through the door. "'And Palmer is downstairs.' 
You see, Christine said drearily, I have received another electric lamp, and Palmer is downstairs. I've got to go through with it, I suppose. The only difference between me and other brides is that I know what I'm getting. Most of them do not. You're going on with it? It's too late to do anything else. I'm not going to give this neighborhood anything to talk about. She picked up her veil and set the coronet on her head. Sidney stood with the letter in her hands. One of Kay's answers to her hot question had been this. There is no sense in looking back unless it helps us to look ahead. What your little girl of the ward has been is not so important as what she is going to be. Even granting this is true, she said to Christine slowly, and it may only be malicious after all, Christine. It's surely over and done with. It's not Palmer's past that concerns you now. It's his future with you, isn't it? Christine had finally adjusted her veil. A band of duchesse lace rose like a coronet from her soft hair, and from it, sweeping to the end of her train, fell fold after fold of soft tulle. She arranged the coronet carefully with small pearl-topped pins. Then she rose and put her hands on Sidney's shoulders. The simple truth is, she said quietly, that I might hold Palmer if I cared. Terribly. I don't. And I'm afraid he knows it. It's my pride that's hurt, nothing else. And thus did Christine Lorenz go down to her wedding. Sidney stood for a moment, her eyes on the letter she held. Already, in her new philosophy, she had learned many strange things. One of them was this, that women like Grace Irving did not betray their lovers, that the code of the underworld was death to the squealer, that one played the game and won or lost, and if he lost, took his medicine. If not Grace, then who? Somebody else in the hospital who knew her story, of course, but who? And again, why? Before going downstairs, Sidney placed the letter in a saucer and set fire to it with a match. Some of the radiance had died out of her eyes. The street voted the wedding a great success. The alley, however, was rather confused by certain things. For instance, it regarded the awning as essentially for the carriage guests, and showed a tendency to duck in under the side when no one was looking. Mrs. Rosenfeld absolutely refused to take the usher's arm which was offered her, and said she guessed she was able to walk up alone. Johnny Rosenfeld came, as befitted his position, in a complete chauffeur's outfit of leather cap and leggings, with the shield that was his state license pinned over his heart. The street came decorously, albeit with a degree of uncertainty as to supper. Should they put something on the stove before they left, in case only ice cream and cake were served at the house? Or was it just as well to trust to luck, and if the Lorenz supper proved inadequate, to sit down to a cold snack when they got home? To Kay, sitting in the back of the church between Harriet and Anna, the wedding was Sydney, Sydney only. He watched her first steps down the aisle, saw her chin go up as she gained poise and confidence, watched the swinging of her young figure in its gauzy white as she passed him, and went forward past the long rows of craning necks. Afterward he could not remember the wedding party at all. The service for him was Sidney, rather odd and very serious, beside the altar. It was Sidney who came down the aisle to the triumphant strains of the wedding march, Sidney with Max beside her. 
on his right sat harriet having reached the first pinnacle of her new career the wedding gowns were successful they were more than that they were triumphant sitting there she cast comprehensive eyes over the church filled with potential brides to harriet then that october afternoon was a future of endless lace and chiffon the joy of creation triumph eclipsing triumph but to anna watching the ceremony with blurred eyes and ineffectual bluish lips was coming her hour sitting back in the pew with her hands folded over her prayer-book she said a little prayer for her straight young daughter facing out from the altar with clear unafraid eyes as sidney and max drew near the door joe drummond who had been standing at the back of the church turned quickly and went out he stumbled rather as if he could not see End of chapter thirteen